For hundreds of years, millions of students in public education have changed their future and altered the trajectory of human history. But now, armed with the information of our day, we realize how many beautiful minds might have been left behind. Today, we talk about what changes we need to make to brighten tomorrow. This is Candor Encounter. Hey, everybody. Hello. <laughs> it hasn't been as long in between no, episodes. No, it's this been time. a proper proper length well, of time. It wasn't before? But it, no, it was. Well, between episode... Oh. <laughs> oh, yeah. One and two. Never mind. We're getting all twisted up because... We did a Episode lot of, two yeah. just released. Oh, yeah, 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 yeah. We're still... Yeah. We're good. We're good. <laughs> we've been keeping... We've been keeping... I don't know what you guys are talking about. <laughs> we've been consistent. Okay, so we're back today. We're here to talk about education. If you couldn't tell. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, if you didn't read the title. Or listen to the intro. Or listen to the intro. <laughs> <laughs> you know, we're all, just like you listeners probably are, are all products of the public education system. So everyone listening probably has personal experience. You know, growing up, I actually spent a lot of time in private education, uh, and we differ in that way. You, my brother, right, right, and me. Right. Yeah, I went to a private school for, I believe, just one year. Chris went there for a large portion of nine years. Yeah. Oh, that long? Yep. Uh, kindergarten through eighth grade. Oh, okay. Mm. And then Sean, I don't think you ever went. To no, I school. didn't have any private schooling. Well, I went to preschool. Oh, you said private school, didn't you? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, Sean, Sean went to preschool. I uh, I did not go to preschool at all. I think Sean was the only one out of us that did. Hey. Which it wasn't as popular back then. Right. You know, it was preschool is fairly new mm -hmm. in terms of right. generationally, which all my kids. Well, I, I said all my kids. That's not true. Before I get started here, actually, part of my story is that I have three children and one of them is too young to go to school and the other is 10 and she went through third grade or up to third grade, I'm sorry, uh, being homeschooled and now is in public school. And then my second youngest is five and she's in kindergarten at public school. And so um, I do have a sort of range of experience between teaching a homeschooler, having a homeschooler, going to private school and going to a public high school. And it was just sort of, all over the map for right. me. Oh, also, you two went to college, at least for some short, short uh, yeah. amount of time, and I didn't. Yeah, so I, I went to, you could call mine college. I got a, a, a two-year degree, but <laughs> uh, it's I'm, I'm a mechanic it's by a trade. Post, it's a post-secondary school, so. Yeah, yeah, but I did, I did take some schooling after. And I, I only took one semester, but as far as, like, what I think was valuable time in the classroom, uh, the time spent in the classrooms during college seemed way more fruitful than anything I had during high school, really. And it was more engaging. I mean, it was mostly strictly stuff I was more interested in, but. I 100% agree. I actually did not enjoy school 
until college. Yeah. And it really surprised me because I was never a very, I was an average student. I was like a, a, I guess you would call a C student or whatever. Like, you know, I was never on a roll, uh, maybe when I was younger, but not, you right, know, right. not mm-hmm. in the, yeah, yeah. in the real tougher school years. But regardless, I got into college and was totally into Engaged everything, every day, every assignment, every, it was, it was really surprising to me because I was just was expecting to be the same student that I was before. But I think something really changes when you have some kind of control over mm-hmm. and some freedom over your choices. That's true. I agree. And it, it didn't, that fact didn't hit me until researching for this topic, that that was the difference I felt between high school and college. I think the most transformational class that I ever took was public speaking. I was always, and I am still an introvert, but it opened me up to be able to stand up in front of people and, and speak and speak my mind. And it, it was a transformational time. I don't look at my early and high school careers as really that transformational. They were formative years. They were years that I was in development, but I don't look at them as something I really gained a lot from. Yeah, no, I agree. Especially as far as like, I mean, I didn't really get anything like. And part of the judgment against the public education system is retention. It's how much, how much you retain from that process. You kind of get buried in a lot of information, at least in the American public school system. Uh, usually somewhere between five and seven classes a day. Yeah. And 50 minutes each, I think, is at least the one we went yeah, to. Yeah, close. And it's nonstop information. Like you have the five minutes or 10 minutes to get to your next class, and then it's more information. And it's done in a very rote process. The information is given to you, whether visually or verbally, and you're expected to retain it in some way, take note of it and then study it. Or it seems, it seems to me to be a very regurgitative model where you only retain it for the testing and that's how your brain functions. Yeah. 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 It's like, you know, for memorization and like, for the results. Well, so even after you get past the testing, right, you're moving on to different subjects, both for that class and every other class. And I'm not saying the human brain can't handle it because it can, but you get to the end of your standardized testing after 10 months of progress and you're expected to recall something 10 months prior that you let go of and had no callbacks to for the next nine months. And you don't, most likely, unless it's something that you're continually building upon in the years to come, it just doesn't stick around. Yeah, it's there's no, you know, your brain won't prioritize it. It's just not built that way, and it's going to pass on any extraneous information. And, and like I said, unless you're building on it, unless it's you know the next higher level math, and you're using the math from before, and you're able to keep that present, then you're going to lose it. And I, the structure, I have learned this when I was, now my daughter didn't get into higher level math because we only went through a few grades, but 
I learned very quickly that if you want to have an enjoyable process and when you're homeschooling, you're aiming for an enjoyable process. You want to have a harmonious home. You want to have a child that's engaged in what you're doing. It's very clear when you don't, and it's only one child, you know, when you have a teacher in front of a class and, and they have a large number of children to deal with, they have information and a process that they have to use, you know, not that they can't pay attention to what students are struggling, but when you're in a one-on-one setting, it's very, very apparent that the person, it's just like if you were having a one-on-one conversation with somebody and they weren't even paying attention to you, it feels, it feels like you could instantly know that this is not going through to that person. It feels like for the teachers, it feels like it's probably a blessing when most of the students are interacting. Oh, I'm sure. Yeah. I, anytime that student engagement is up, then you definitely know that whatever information is being talked about or taught or whatever is being retained because there's that collaborative process. And like I said, with my daughter, it, you, the questions would, would flow and her interest was up. You could tell, you just know when a person is interested and we would guide our, our curriculum by her interest. And that was totally okay with me. You know, at first I was, I come from a structured schooling background. Right. right. And so you would try to go through this book, whether it was like history or science or whatever, and you would try to go in order. And sometimes we wouldn't even use a book and we could jump around and fill in the blanks as, as we go. And the reason that you have to stick to such a hard line in public education is you have so many. Yeah. You're teaching. Yeah. Right. 20 people a class. Now I'm not saying that's an inherent fault in the public education system. I just wanted to point out that there is an obvious, if you've ever been a part of homeschooling, there's an obvious, there's an obvious difference between what a student is engaged in and what a student is expected to study. I mean, if you want to go the route of making public education like individual based, does that seem feasible? Yeah, I I don't know. I thought a lot about this because obviously you have large numbers of people and you don't have and can't afford large numbers of educators. Not that large. Yeah, yeah. Right. So you still have to, and we're going under with the presumption of providing a free public education still and not destroying the system, you know, mm. uh, I'm not that I'm a fan of that, but I'm just saying if you have all the options on the table, right. Breaking the system down and starting over is one of them, but I'm not a fan of that option. I think that there's too much at stake. And I also think that it's impossible to do and get zero support for. If you tried that route, it just wouldn't be, no one, would it be wouldn't gain any yet. traction. Yeah. And I think it's the wrong approach. So before we get into fixing yeah, problems, yeah, before we've yeah. talked about how the system works, uh, like we said, most of our listeners are I almost said victims yeah. of the public <laughs> education system. That was totally unintentional. But the, they're experienced in it. Yeah. Mm-hmm. More than likely. Yeah. You guys are experienced in it. And 
we all know how it works. You go to school, there are somewhere between 12 and 30 students in your class taught by one teacher. They are given a structured curriculum from the school, or at least a, depending on where you're from, they're either given the whole curriculum or they're given uh, partial cur- curriculum or testing standards that they right. have to meet and they choose the curriculum. Regardless, they are taught on mass in a super structure environment with very little malleability. And it's my opinion that through the advancements in understanding and mental health and individuality and strengths and IQ and just every differential factor under the sun that there are different levels of needs between all of these different students. Mm -hmm. Now the public education system that we've worked with for hundreds of years served a purpose. Right. I don't think that it was a failure. It was, yeah, it was like a product product of its time and, and successful and useful, but I mean, it's dated, you know, it is dated. There's just no, Almost nothing to be gained by continuing to use the same system for for bettering our future. And we make continual adjustments to every system that humans use, industrial systems, even post-secondary education systems are adaptable, right? But these forms of early education are really mired in old design and they suffer from the failures of that design. Yeah. We're talking about, I mean, we had a tech boom. Nineties. Yeah. 20 ish years ago, 30 ish years Mm -hmm. ago. And like, say when we had the uh, kind of advancement of the touchscreen technology. And once we had tablets and things, and maybe it's a personal opinion, but I feel like technology would be the one of the best upgrades you can get for a school immediately. Like as soon as a technology is made, it should be available for school. Right. And it's come up recently with like the pandemic and Zoom and all this. And I mean, it was I didn't experience it myself, but I'm sure it was very taxing for students and for probably the school system in a way. And parents. And oh, parents. Yeah. But uh I, I feel like we, they the school system should have adapted to to utilize the internet much more usefully much earlier. Yeah, I think that it has been a a bit of a kick in the pants for the development yeah, yeah, of remote education, mm-hmm. but it isn't an entire solution. Yeah, it's not like remote education is the solution. Yeah. No, there were a lot of problems that came with pure yeah. pure remote education. And there was a lot of societal issues and um, mental health issues with children who were now alone. Yeah. And a lot of children who gained benefit even just as meals because they weren't getting regular meals at home. You know, when they were cut off right. from the school, right. then they suffered. And when you have parents who aren't really involved. And this happens a lot in um, high crime areas 
but it, if you have less parent involvement to make sure the child stays on the work, mm. right? Because they're children and they would definitely rather go watch YouTube. If you don't help them, then their final scores suffer. Right. You know, or they're completely absent from the work getting done. And there's no one there to offer them that hand who is separate from their household like there is in public education. Yeah. I had this problem myself when I was in high school because I did uh, a couple like online classes within like the computer lab at school. And I mean, it was sort of better because I could go at my own pace, but for one, uh, my pace was too slow. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, And I was interested in the subjects, but trying to learn while just staring at a screen doesn't do it for me. I do need the contact, but I do see the usefulness of. As a tool. Yeah. Yeah. And I think that it will never go away. I think remote learning is here to stay mm-hmm. um, in the elementary schools and the middle schools and, and stuff like that. Because even now, like they do make makeup work is done that way, even like, or they'll take just a virtual day and then they'll go back. Right. But it's a regular occurrence now. So it's part of school life and everything is managed on online. So all of their schoolwork, all of their grades, all of their homework, like it's all, everything is yeah. on there. Yeah. And all communication with the teachers and the school and and lunch money and everything is online. So the remote connection to education will never go away. And it really shouldn't in a world like we have now. Right, right. as connected mm. as we are. Yeah. But going back to the way school is designed, you know, it's a, it's a model that hails back from the late 1830s and it, people call it the Prussian model. It was started in America by a man named Horace Mann. And he went over to Prussia, which is now modern day Germany. And they had designed this system for the industrial age. It was meant to churn out a workforce, right? And I don't say that in a negative way because it sounds negative when right, you say yeah. churn out a workforce. Like it's Child meant labor, to be like, a human robot right, machine, yeah, right? Yeah. But no, I mean, that was the needs of our day, right? So we were a pre-industrial society. And the needs of an industrial society couldn't be met with an, the disconnected agricultural society that we had couldn't produce the public education in its current state to support any kind of improvement on the economy. Right. Yeah. Giving how to wear this, giving structure and everything that we see nowadays in today's like standard model of a a school, not necessarily a bad thing. Mm -hmm. No, like we're not talking smack about it. Like it's useful in its own way. It was useful. And for hundreds of years, it remained that way. But as we, like you said, through the internet age, we're well past pure industrialization. Mm -hmm. We're in a modern connected world. And we realize the differences, as we stated earlier, between the individual humans that are going through this process. And it's so standardized all across the board. It doesn't matter if it's education or, I mean, uh, 
curriculum or the amount of time that's required from the student. It's almost, you could almost go to any city in the country and it looks almost exactly the same. And, and the needs of the children are so different. I, I can tell you, I don't mean to just keep rambling on, uh, but. I mean, being, being both a teacher and a student, it helps having a view on it. Yeah. You have the most. Well, I was going to reference. So, you know, how can I say this? Um, recently I was diagnosed with ADHD within the past six months. And as I've been trying to sort through what that means and what I went through in childhood and didn't realize that, that I went through and couldn't make sense of it at the time. And add to that, that my daughter uh, is also displaying signs of ADHD and we are going to, uh, she's going to be evaluated just in a week or so. And those needs that children have, the current system is only very minorly adaptable. There is only so much that you can do mm. to take a highly rigid system and make accommodations for people that are different. And it has highlighted that fact for me, I guess is what I'm trying to say. My current process with my daughter's education and me understanding the needs that she has because of um, what I went through, I'm, I'm able to connect with the problem that she has and the solution that she needs and the inability of the school to do it. And it's a, been a tough road. And we're really trying to figure out how to get her the proper instruction it, it requires, I'll just do a really quick breakdown. She needs more individualized attention, but she's highly intelligent and is above scores all over the board academically, right? But she can't regulate her attention. She can't focus her mind and she can't slow her mind. And so because of this overdrive, and because her thought process is so jumbled, it can look like she performs poorly, right? But as, an ind as a parent, I can tell you when I sit with her, she can do perfectly fine because I understand how to instruct her. Mm -hmm. I understand how to re-engage her. I understand how to reward her. And with ADHD, that is an important factor. And so bringing in the reward system into the education system is very important for someone struggling with that. And it's very difficult for someone to do that who is trying to juggle so many other things for a teacher, right? So I'm not faulting the right. teacher. Oh, no. I don't think any of us will. I, like, there, I'm not going to lie. There are some bad teachers out there. I've, oh, ran sure. into, I've ran into a couple. And, like, it just most are trying to help. Most are yeah. trying to... Uh, do the best they yeah. can with the tools they're given. And they're given very few tools. And they're trapped in a system mm -hmm. Yeah. Mm -hmm. that is very unforgiving for someone who tries to do something different. And so this was just a small picture of a larger problem. The one that I was just talking about, the personal one, was just a testimonial about what kind of issues plague the entire system. If you think about it, 
this is just a pinprick right. across the whole system. Now, I think that this outdated model has to be reformed in some way. Yeah, I couldn't agree more. It seems paramount almost that, that there is some kind of reform here for this. I agree with you, Sean. I think that the the future, I mean, is our children. I know that that's like can sound really corny, but like it literally yeah. is. And, you know, I wish I could remember the exact dates, but like, okay, let me, I'll ballpark this in my head for a second. So someone who is in kindergarten right now is going to be retiring in like 2082. Right. Think about that for a second. Like we're, we're talking about when we say the word future, it can seem very nebulous, but like what we're saying is the kindergartners, my daughter, right. Are going to be finished working by 2082. Yeah. Are going to be finished working in 2082. So, they definitely carry the future yeah. on their back. Yeah. But we're educating them right now. For for the 1930s. Yeah. <laughs> 1830s. 1830s. <laughs> yeah. With the, the Prussians. <laughs> yeah, yeah. It goes even, yeah. Did you guys see about, like, when Rockefeller founded and funded the General Education Board in, like, 1902 or something? I did, yeah. Did you see the... What stuck out to me the most was the quote from him. The it was, I don't want a nation of thinkers. I want a nation of workers. Yeah, that is. Yeah, you like, know you said that, dude. <laughs> yeah, you know when well, we. Um, I mean, back then it was important. Yeah, it was a Especially different. It was with a, world wars going on, and it was a different tone. Being yeah. part of the workforce was a great thing. Yeah. Well, especially when you need work. Yeah. That's true. Right? It's a message that people that want work can get behind. Right. But it also is a very big signal to how the system was made mm -hmm. and how it was yeah. made to operate. And we understand in the 21st century the importance of critical thinking. Yeah. This is a new a new age, a new age with cryptocurrency and a world, a plethora of creative endeavors. You, you can just use your imagination to make money. Right. Yeah. You can use your creativity to do that. Is it as safe as going to work? Maybe not. But that's neither here nor there, right? I mean, that's a personal choice that right. they can make. And our, we should have a creative process in built into the education system. I mean, there still has to be some level of uniformity. I yeah. get that. Like, you don't have a pathway to be a neurosurgeon without uniformity. Right. There still has to yeah. be structure. Yeah. Because, I mean, you're still teaching children. And you can't just like, oh, you're interested, go over there. Yeah, exactly. And they're still stuck on it being like, I don't want to say a competition, but, you know, it's competition-esque. Yeah. Like you're shooting for the top. It makes students afraid of being wrong, which is like vital to learn a hundred percent. I totally, and this is a huge deal 
because I'm witnessing this real time. And I, I, I don't want to bore listeners with all of my personal details, but you know, I'm watching my daughter go transition from a homeschool background to a public school education, but I'm witnessing the transition from homeschool to exactly. Yeah. For my daughter from homeschool to public education. And I get to see what happens. And so this is a little bit of a unique view for me. And I was very close with her in her home education. And so I know how she is. I know her behavior. I know her habits and I know her interests. And so I get to watch and see how this plays. And we're on finishing up the second year of her public education. And what I'm seeing is a drastic lowering of her self-esteem. And I mean, drastic. She is not underperforming yet. And I'm, I'm hoping it stays that way. Uh, and we're of course trying to help her through the personal struggles that she has. But I saw her go from, look, she was never, never embarrassed to raise her hand. And schooling at home isn't the only thing she ever did when we homeschooled her. And we had these things called co-ops where we take them to places where all the homeschool kids in the area get together and they are taught in classroom settings. Mm -hmm. And it was like once a week. So I've seen her in classroom settings while, while she was in homeschool age and she was very eager. She was very eager to participate, always wanted to answer. And I was very proud at the time because, you know, I knew what I was like as a child right, right, and how scared I was. You don't want to raise your hand. You don't want to read out loud. You don't, you know, right, right. everybody knows that feeling. And it didn't exist. It didn't exist. She had avoided it altogether. Now I did see it exist in some of the other children at the co-op, but I didn't see it in her. And it is a lot less common. And probably because the co-op process is so collaborative the, the classes, not only are they a little bit smaller, but they're also taught by parents and parents that are personally invested in the process. And there are multiple parents in the room. So if children need help, there's another adult in addition to who's mm. teaching the class. Anyway, I didn't mean to go into the whole process, but it's, it's much more. You're working together to learn instead of I'm teaching. Right, the collaborative aspect seems yeah. big. Yes, yes. And it's it's very hands-on and it's very – because all of those mothers, they get it. They want the children to be involved. And so they have full control of the process. They're not limited or hamstrung by the system. And so every class you go into, it's like – it's, it's totally different than going walking into a public school classroom. And sometimes it works out really, really well. And then you'll see other people try stuff and it seems to fall flat. But that's the best part of it, I think, is because it's almost like a laboratory. Yeah. And then you learn. And then the next year you volunteer and you teach a class and you now know what works because you've been helping and I, it's just really great, but I, I got, I got, uh, I got way off onto a topic that I didn't mean to, but well, I mean, it seems like homeschooling. I mean, even if it's not perfect, it seems like it's more the way that how the teacher student relationship needs to be. Right. 
it is, it's much closer. And I don't know, you know, I'm not going to claim to know exactly how to fix our situation. It's a very complicated system. Oh, I mean, mm-hmm. this is, we barely have enough time to cover the topic in an episode. And so. we are not even going to scratch the surface over the hurdles that you're going to run into trying to reform the system because this system is really supported by money. And that is part of the problem. That's why it's not changing mm-hmm. because there are business systems in place that f- are fed by public education dollars billions and billions of them. And so having these standardized testing textbook information delivery, teacher management, like all of the unions, I mean, it goes, all of it's in the way. It goes even farther because recent, I say recently, I was like the beginning of my high school career, a paper business near our school shut down. Oh yeah. So we lost essentially all of the paper that the school had access to. Um, what we ended up getting were like colored sheets that could be, that were like poorly cut so they didn't get sold or something. And the paper place generously donated them to the school. Mm-hmm. Uh, they don't donated to several schools, but our school was one of them. Just noticing like a lack of paper within a school. Right. Just that being a f- like, it was this big thing that yeah, every, it, it was, was. It was like you like uh, they would give you worksheets for homework, and you couldn't write on the worksheet because yeah, they would say you would write on your own paper and then bring the worksheet back. Yeah, yeah, so they could reuse it. It was a weird, weird thing, and it's crazy to think that so much money is poured into a system that's still lacking in so many areas. Yeah. You know. I was looking at um, the – because the spending on public education has skyrocketed over the last 20 years. Oh, yeah. Just ballooned. And the question is where where is that all going, yeah, right? There's been – over that period of time, there's been a 5% increase in enrollment. Okay? So that's probably just a birth rate increase. It's probably <laughs> right. just 5% more people born. Because we are not, um, as we've talked about in other episodes, we're not bursting at the seams Mm -hmm. uh, with our birth rate. But we've had that ballooning cost to education. And 95% of that cost is administrative cost. Really? Yeah. Administrative positions make up 95% of the increased cost over the last 20 years. So you're talking extra secretaries, extra uh principals and vice principals and and or pay staff raises or or raises yeah but you have administrative raises i mean i'm sorry but you have administrative cost increases and that's it and i you you won't see that show up in teachers paychecks right it's just more and more and more positions and this is my one gripe with almost all bureaucracies is they are uncontrollable in their, in the back end. Right. Right. So the management is hard to, yeah. When you go raising budgets because you have these positions you need to fill, you know, the board of education, which is also run by people who have never been teachers for the most part, 
and school administrators, which are not usually teachers, you have a system that is not designed and ran by educators. Yeah, and so, managers. And so managers add more managers. If you think about that 95% cost increase, all of this should be going to the students somehow. Yeah. You know, and not creating a burdensome structure to support the same amount of students that you were before. Right. It's yeah. so top heavy. And I'm not calling the people that work in the school system out. I'm not saying that they are part of the problem, right? They, they, they're just normal people who mm-hmm. they're, they got a took job. A job yeah. Right. Yeah. But when you look at the system as a whole, it has to be overhauled. It has to be overhauled and you have to be honest about that. And that means that this needs to be a, you, you don't need a superstructure admin department. Right. Okay. <laughs> what you need is a superstructure built around the individual students. And so I think that that's going to require a lot more ingenuity. Yeah. I can't even begin to think about how, I mean, I could begin to think about how to reform the public education system, but there's no way uh, I'd know it would work or I could give any definitive answer. It's pretty daunting. Yeah. I mean, like what's even worse is you won't learn for 40 years. Learn whether what? it's like super effective oh, like or not. Paying off. Yeah. Oh yeah. Yeah. And it That's presents more too. problems because as you abandon things like standardized testing, how do you gauge the successfulness? Yeah. Mm. The how do you prioritize the changes that you're making, the adjustments that you're making? Yeah, we can we can talk bad about standardized testing all we want, but I mean, is there an, another effective way as effective? As standardized testing. To right. I mean, you can let there be grading or testing. Like, testing is useful. Right. Right. But you don't have to make it so uh, based on the test. Yeah. I think that performance versus critical thinking is the problem. You know, here here it is when we say, like we were talking about earlier, where we have low retention. So, within a couple of years, if they're not using the material, it's just gone. It's mm-hmm. gone forever. And the reason is because they're not using it in a way that develops critical thinking. If they're using writing for problem solving, critical thinking, problem solving and group collaboration, if they're using writing for that, then it supports the the writing and grammar that they're already trying to develop. You see, it's like you have to, you have to piece it together to where all of the pieces will work instead of blocking it off like periods in a day. And I'm not saying you can't use structure in any way because there still has to be structure, but there has to be freedom and malleability in the way that you develop. And I think that a lot of that freedom needs to end up in the hands of the teachers. And I think that a lot of the, the overbearing restrictions and contingencies and requirements that are placed upon the teachers from the hardcore curriculums have to be, I know that sounds counterintuitive because you're saying 
give them rope, right, right. Let give them slack, right? But then you, you know, I mean, they need that slack though. Like being able to teach, like a student, is the goal, and not being able to meet that goal because you're, you know, tied around the neck by this noose. Mm-hmm. Yeah, like I mean, how uh, you can't. Yeah, you have to give them the freedom. But the the key is you have to give them that freedom. And I also think that because of their experience, part of the important, I heard this on a Ted talk. I think one of the most important parts of reform is in that upper, in those upper management levels, the people who make the decisions, right? So you have boardroom, you have boards of education Mm -hmm. and those are typically politicians, right? And I think that, I think that those roles, the roles of the administrators of the schools, the roles of the boards of education, all of those, you, you, I think you have to be an educator to fill that role. Mm, I think you, I think that needs to be a requirement. Like you don't, you, you just can't hold that office unless you have whatever, five or 10 years of, of public education. I agree. For those positions, we need a little bit higher standards for, for like who's forming yeah. what is being taught how. Yeah. And you need the lay of the land. Yeah. I mean, it's, it's kind of like the military, like the military requires you to have a certain amount of time in service before you can gain a rank and have control over a certain amount of people. Exactly. But the way it's set now is most school systems, it's just um, the person who's on the ballot. And ends up in the board of education. And I think that that's, I think that's a total injustice because there is no way that they understand the, the school system. Right. It's, I never, I never thought about it that much. It's so weird that to have this like almost politicized like, and, version know, of, of the an education right, right. board. The idea then was really that they were, they were elected. They're not going to make mm-hmm. decisions that endanger, you right. know, yeah, the I, parents yeah. can elect them. But here's the thing. Our political systems are so difficult and convoluted now. No one understands who is getting elected for what. It's too It's too complicated. Yeah. It's too disconnected. I don't know those people. Used to, when we were an agrarian society, you knew who was running yeah, for the yeah. board of education because you knew everyone. Right. It was... Yeah, a smaller pool of you knew the mayor, you you knew who's on the board of education. <laughs> you went to school with the principal. Yeah, like, you, you knew the sheriff. Right, right. It it's not like that anymore. Yeah, the times they are changing. This so, is for sure. And you know, I think this is a larger conversation we'll have one day about representation now. But this is the problem with the modern political system is we have quote unquote representation, Mm -hmm. but we don't have the accountability that's supposed to come with representation because of the population growth. Anyway. Mm. So that's another conversation for another day. Yeah. Yeah. But we could also look to other countries. I did for inspiration. I don't know if y'all looked at other like Finland. I looked at Finland a little bit. That's really the only one because everyone talks about Finland. Yes. Right. I mean, you have Finland, Switzerland's also a good, um, like, top-ranking school system. 
And they're all so different than the American school system. Yeah. There are some models out there that we really can glean a lot from. I think the trouble right now is that we really have to find a way to rally. You know, we only get these bursts of energy to change the public school system every four years when or two years, but it's only for an election cycle. Right. And then everybody goes back to their social media and, you know, all that stuff. Mm -hmm. And I'm not pointing fingers. That's I, I am a human being too. And this is exactly <laughs> what I do. And I follow the same patterns, but you know, when I was reading on this stuff, it, it gets you kind of passionate about how the future can really be different. And I'm not typically that optimistic <laughs> of a person, <laughs> if you know me personally, but I really feel because this feels like an area where we can do something. Yeah. You know, you feel a little bit lost when you talk about uh, global warming or right. some existential threat or all of the myriad of issues right. that we've talked <laughs> yeah. about down the road. But as far as education goes, it's it's as simple as either like voting the right people in that can make the changes that need to happen mm -hmm. or... But we talked about this big business aspect to it and, you know, all of these lobbies and I, one day we're going to have to talk about lobbyists, but all of these lobbies that work for the textbook companies and the standardized testing representatives and uh, they pour millions of dollars yeah, yeah, into right. into campaigns and they just bring in, you know, secretaries of education and they just prop up this machine and... It's a stuck wheel. Like I just don't. That's the part. Yeah, that it's I don't not know something you can hit an emergency stop on. Yeah, and then repair and release back. Yeah, well, they're actively working against us, right? To keep their yeah. businesses going, right? And they don't want reform. And there's a lot we're not going to get to in this episode. By the way, it's just the nature of it. I mean. There's so much. Yeah, something you'll notice. All of these topics, you could probably base a whole podcast off yeah. of. <laughs> yeah. At uh, least a chunk. I mean. We could do a whole series on this, but we're just going to go over uh, the basics and mm. our beliefs. And we sort of, in the beginning, um, did we kind of highlight how we felt before we began? Do you feel like we went over the sort of candor area of it or no? Uh, uh, I don't know if we did it on mic or not. <laughs> I remember I talking think, a little bit, yeah. but I don't know if it was on mic. Well, let's know. real quick before we miss the boat. Yeah. 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 Let's talk about how we felt about public education oh, before we, we did We talked anything. about our experiences. Yeah. yeah. Briefly. Not, yeah, we'll go. But as far as your ideas about whether before you even hit the, the Google button, what you right. thought about as far as would you think the public education system needed to be reformed before you started looking I never thought super critically about it. I mean, my experience in school was not that fruitful. And I realized this, but I was just like, ah, you know, school wasn't for me. You know, whatever. I'll, I'll blaze my own path. Yeah, thing. exactly. Yeah. And it didn't hit me until I was researching that I was like, wow, I really missed out on something that yeah. could have been like I, I, vital I, to my upbringing. Yeah. You feel like the school. Yeah, I system. felt slighted. You feel if if it had, let's say, 
hypothetically it had already been reformed and you would and you through went it. through it and there was much more collaboration and interactive activity and and self-guided study and all of this other stuff and self-paced mm-hmm. uh, structure that you think that it probably would have really changed yeah I, I for think you. if I if I had went to a reformed school I probably would have gone to post-secondary education yeah that might be true for me too I mean I don't know it's hard to say because like because I I saw even during high school I saw a path where I would be going into college and, well yeah like yeah. I saw all these paths right I ended up choosing one because I was indecisive and decided military was probably the best option because I could delay all of my options if I did that. <laughs> yes, yes. So uh, I chose the military because I'm a procrastinator. It's just purgatory. <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, I mean, if I had gone to, if I was more ambitious about the things I was interested in, then I probably would have gone and, I don't know, been a cosmologist. Yeah, yeah I, I agree with that sentiment completely. If there was something within school that could have struck ambition within me. That's yeah. what I would would have hoped for. And it's sad. It's sad because to think of something that could have so much promise for so many people, and it does help a lot of people. I'm not trying to. Right. I mean, I, I said I didn't, it was fruit fruitless for me or not fruitful, but I mean, I look back on school with a great fondness. I enjoyed my time with it as a social space. Mm-hmm. And sometimes wish I could still go back, but the schooling part was in the background for me. Right. And I wonder what kind of social environment that would look like to have a school that people enjoy. Like, I'm not going utopia here. I'm not saying that the world is perfect and any Mm -hmm. school would ever be perfect or that all the children in the school would be perfect. But what I'm saying is in an environment that fosters that kind of, uh, yeah, it's collaboration, only- that kind of reliance on each other and reliance on self. And, and I think that that those humans, those self-reliant, socially strong people would have a different yeah, it feels and like- better probably social st- structure, peer to peer, you know, interactions. It feels more like a Tomorrowland-esque Right, right. <laughs> Almost. Yeah, we're, I don't, we're, I don't want to well, paint it too rosy. I realize no, but that we're I mean, all human. It's still like it still has that picture of like uh so I don't know if you know what Tomorrowland is. It's right. if you haven't heard of it, a place where inventors go to uh build their inventions mm. freely of without any restriction. Uh it's this fantastical place. But I mean it w- I feel like it'd be something similar to that where people have these ideas or innovations that they want to make or anything that they want. And to. they just come out unbridled. Yeah. I mean, you have no fear to yeah, hold that back. You're I, like, I have this idea that I want to work on or like can feasibly do. And somebody is like, yeah, that sounds dope. Mm-hmm. There's a link in our show notes about a Ted talk. And it was a guy, or I, I say a guy, it was like a 16 year old dude. And he was telling the story about why he suddenly became a businessman and entrepreneur and a successful student. And he was a C student and he was just sort of sailing through 
and wasn't getting a lot out of it. But he sort of randomly went to this um, business competition, which I didn't even know was a thing. <laughs> but it's like never heard of it. high schooler business competition or something. Mm. But uh, they team up people together and he traveled to this thing and they put you in a group. It's like, you know how they have like model UNs? Okay. Yeah. It was like a fake UNs and they staff it and everybody's mm. all the different positions. But it's, it's sort of like that. So you, you go to this competition and you're grouped together and then your group has to come up with a business model and then you have to pitch it. Like it's, um, and then they're going to choose yeah, one. Yeah. They, you know, it's, it's Fun, just sort of teaching you uh, business skills, entrepreneurial skills, and uh, it's a competition and you can win money and it, you know, it's just a sort of uh, creative process. And he was telling the story about, he just went to one and then he won. And he was like, he was never interested in school. He was never interested in, you know, trinomials or like, right, he just right. didn't speak to him. And he was sailing through just on the social whims of the school and making sure he got by. And he, and he said, I learned who I was. Like I, I, I found out that I'm creative. I found out that I'm driven I found out that I have all of these ambitions and I I'm 14 years old. I'm 14 and like I won this business competition and I was stoked. So I right. went to another one and he's like, so I went to another one and I won that one, you know, or my group won that one. Right. Right. And, uh, and went to another one and we just kept winning and we go to all these different competitions. And then he said, but what really set us apart was, when we'd go to the competition, they would, all these other teams would put together these presentations and then pitch this business idea. And he said, we wouldn't do that. We would go, we would go out, we go to home Depot, we build what we wanted. <laughs> <laughs> and like, we would, we would create, we would, we would create what we wanted to do in our business. And then we would, then we would pitch that business. Right. And he said, and the doers always won. And and he said, so that taught me about life. And, and then I went back to school and, um, oh, he wanted people to join a team, his team to go to another. Oh, okay, yeah. So he did like a, a club or group recruitment, you know, at the school. Yeah. And then like no one showed up and everybody was making fun of him and stuff like this. This was, uh, in his, uh, middle school or early high school. I don't remember. And then he said, or I think it was early high school. And then he went into early middle school and he did the same thing and they were like super excited <laughs> and wanted to know everything and wanted to join and do everything. And so he, he said your school system, he had a, a critique of the school system mm. and he said, your school system is killing the creativity in your students. He said, they are too afraid to take any risk. Right. By the time, by the time they get through middle school, you've already sucked it out of them. And it's just like hearing him say oh, that. Yeah. And he's like, and this is coming from a, wow. he's now 16 and he owns a successful business featured in the wall street journal. And he was like, I can't tell you how much you are failing yeah. these children. And this is a 16 year old wow, dude, like dude. lecturing, <laughs> right. them, you know? And he's just like, you have to fix what you're doing. And it's so true. Wow. There is a, this focus, which I heard on another Ted talk on rigor mm. on how rigorous it is 
And, you know, there was a teacher in that TED talk and he said he brought these, these ideas to his um, board. He, he was a teacher. He brought it to his board of education and he brought all these ideas for injecting creativity and opening up the other side of the brain to the schools and, and all of these different ways and how they could do it. And they said, that is not rigorous enough. That's not tough enough. Really? That was their aim. And, you know, he's right. He's like, why are you aiming for rigor? Like, why are you not aiming for success? I don't why understand. Why are you making people struggle? Yeah. Why, why, why are you saying it has to be the hardest thing they've ever done? I, it seems like such an, an odd goalpost. Maybe it's like, the more rigorous. Uh, if you means. go through hard times, you'll come out stronger. Maybe if that you as well. My thought was like, the more more rigorous means more work. More work means more paper and supplies, which means more money. <laughs> <laughs> we went two yeah. different routes, I see. Yes. I think it has a lot of meanings. Yeah, you know, you're probably right. Yeah, and I think that that probably, I think rigor would probably be a good crosshair for an educational business right because that makes yeah. sense yeah what do you what what do you mean like you said like making it difficult means you have to have oh more okay okay, okay yeah, yeah, yeah 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 the more studious the more academically rigorous then the more your resources are needed right or the higher your test scores might be and the better you'll look on the board or whatever Right, right. Or you or you can show how high your standards are. Right, right, yeah. right. That brings us to another thing, and that's the introduction of Common Core, No Child Left Behind, yep. all of the different federal regulations that have really, you know, what they're doing is standardizing more and more, and the reason they're doing that is so they can ensure equality in, in education across the board. But as we've already discussed, that's the opposite direction that you should be going, right? Yeah. I heard a story that was vaguely similar to the one you just told. And uh, it was about two eight-year-old boys in Toronto. They were in Toronto. They were in grade four. uh, And they were tasked with, like, going about the playground and... With, like, a graph to, like, map locations and stuff, they would map where where and when during the day disruptions or arguments or fights would break out on the playground. How old were they? Eight. Eight. Impressive. They would, like, go around the playground and, like, ask the other kids or teachers. And they found out that uh, there were much more disruptions during the afternoon, like, recess than there are in the morning. So they take that to the teachers and they're like, so why don't you just schedule more teachers to supervise during the afternoon recess hours than in the morning rather than keep it equal all across? And I mean, they were keen on the idea of the teachers, but they only have so many hours they can allot to whenever for the supervising of the the recess. So they take the information they got home with them and they like, sort of workshop it themselves and they get the I'm not sure how true all this is it it was posed as true and it was in a book as well so I don't know but 
they reformed the schedule to where there's less teachers in the morning and more during the afternoon. I forgot how they did it. I'm following you. But yeah. And they they also changed like the placement of where the teachers would supervise from due to where the disruptions were breaking out. Like they would put teachers close to the disruption area. Mm -hmm. And more teachers as well, rather than just one or two. And I guess the teacher that they first brought this to was like, hey, this is kind of something that might work. Yeah. So they brought it to, I don't know how the education system works in Canada. They called it a board, but I can't see them taking this to the whole board of education. But anyway, they take this to like a committee of like teachers and administrators. Uh-huh. And they everyone like in the committee was like, yeah, this is pretty much a solution. Let's do this. And then they enacted the, the change schedule. <laughs> and and this is this highlights the creative and critical thinking yeah. that children can have, right? But they're expected to sit down and be the listeners all right. the time and don't have they don't feel like they add value. I mean, when you feel like you add value to something, you become personally invested and proud of it. And you become aware, hyper aware of your involvement and your engagement. And I, I think that the elements that they displayed in that story is that children are capable. They're capable and they have something to offer each other, you know, and it, it acting like they need to be the recipients all the time rather than collaborators. I know I've used that word a lot because I don't really know a great synonym there. But it's a good word. Like, yeah. it's. I think it's one of the ones that, that should be... I'm glad you're saying it so much because it's it's one of the... End best, goals. Yeah, one of the best ways to, yeah. to help mitigate what we have going wrong right now. The change from competition to collaboration. Because you're so passive sitting on the back end just like waiting for the information to be fed to you. It's yeah. such a passive way to educate yourself. Well, not educate yourself, but you know what I'm saying. Another important reform I think that could really help is not only do teachers end up in administrative roles, like I said earlier, and also teachers having the freedom in their classrooms to manage the entire education that they're responsible for. But I also think that parent and teacher and local involvement is more important. It's more important than federal or state or board regulate. Oh, absolutely. I have experienced it as a, as a parent in the co-op setting where families can get personally invested in the education of their children. Look, the parents don't have to be there every single day. Okay. Like we did with co-op or whatever. They didn't have to be there every single day like we did with homeschooling. But the teachers can foster the environment and the parents can be personally connected to it with feedback and and where their feedback can actually make change because the teacher isn't limited and can't do what the parent thinks is a good idea. And the, and the kids can't ha- provide feedback to the teacher. I think that all of that is missing in the equation. I think also one of the key factors with having proper teachers in place, because when we're talking about reforming a system and allowing freedom to the teachers, 
I, I think that that's so important, but I also want to reiterate that means you have to have stellar teachers who will take personal responsibility for their classrooms. Right. Absolutely. You can't have standby teachers because passive teachers will create. You'll find them. Uh, right. I no, promise. You no, I agree. I agree with you. Yeah. I agree with you. But one of the problems that we run into with keeping and getting the correct stellar teachers who are in it for the process of developing minds and educating and raising children, right? That is a difficult, difficult job. And the current system allows for some people to get away. Some, not all. So I'm not trying to insult teachers here Mm. to get away with underperforming. And the way that they get away with it is through the tenure system. And the tenure system, do you know really kind of how that works? Yeah. The tenure system, after a certain amount of time and you've gained tenure, you're almost untouchable. Also, along with the teachers unions who are like guarding the gate from being able to get rid of teachers that aren't holding up to a standard. When you have teachers that are really failing students, you need to be able to flush them out. And you have to move those roadblocks out of the way because you have to bring in fresh, willing, excited teachers. And you you have to, if you're going to allow this to be a creative front, if you're going to allow the process to be their own, you have to be forgiving because they're going to try things. Mm-hmm. But you also have to be, as an administrator, you know, like as a yeah, principal yeah. or whatever. Yeah. But you also have to be able to Make changes when changes need to be made. Something you're also going to find is the students know. Like the student, oh, yeah. know, students Absolutely. know if you're a bad teacher. Oh, yeah. And I can tell you the good ones. Yeah, the yeah, students right? like know I if can, you're a great yeah. teacher. Mm-hmm. Like I can pick out specifically the teachers that I absolutely learned from the most. Right, the teachers whose classes I enjoyed going to. And, and, and most of the from. time, the reason you enjoyed learning from them is because they they engaged they, you. Absolutely. Exactly, exactly. Yeah. They weren't passive information dispatchers, right? And I just, I think that a lot of the people, a lot of the teachers who are currently in the system are, they just feel trapped in that mode, mm-hmm. right? I think that once you liberate it, I I feel like the creative direction that they have will, will come out. Like one of the, um, just a quick note. One of the history teachers that I had, he started every class getting your creative juices flowing. And the way he did that was conspiracy theories. He would find a conspiracy theory and it would be referenced throughout the class while he was teaching some subject. He would find some conspiracy theory that fit the lesson plan for that yeah. day. And he really made it. Yeah, it made it something you could hold on to and relate that information to and something you could recall back from. Mm -hmm. And, you know, we've all had, I had teachers that maybe they didn't do something drastically different academically, but they reached out to me. Mm -hmm. You know, I had a, I broke the rules and I got my first suspension. I think it's my first suspension ever. My only suspension ever, if I remember right. Because I plagiarized one time. Oh, on a English paper of some kind. I don't remember. (laughs) 
but you know, she came to me and she gave me suspension, but she came to me and she said, I know you and you're a good person. And I know that you can do better because you are talented, but I was supposed to be in trouble. Right. You know what I mean? And I got my appropriate consequences. Don't get me wrong, but she didn't hold it over my head after that. She didn't pound me into the ground with it. Immediately, she came to me and she said, we can work together to, to do better because I know you can. And like that kind of teacher who is there to support and to, and to forgive and to uplift and carry right. someone, that is the kind of teacher that you want, you know, and who cares about the health and the well-being of their students. But, you know, these teachers who do a good job and support their students and and play a critical role in their development, even in today's system, even in this old system, they deserve more. And, Especially now. Right. I mean, yeah. we've gone through, what, three years now of a pandemic, basically. Right. And right. now they're managing students all over the place. Some are at home, some are at school, some are at home half the time, then back at school half the time, and then... It, it's just really weird, right? And they have to have all the assignments in person for the people that are in person, yep. and then all the assignments for the people that are gone on 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 online. And I can imagine how difficult this must be. So that being said, they deserve more, and that means they deserve more pay. Absolutely. Like I mean, even it's I feel like it's been a historical thing that teachers deserve more, and they just don't get it. Well, here's the thing. Therapists, surgeons, doctors, general practitioners, anyone who takes care of the health and well-being of your children, they deserve way more. They period. Case closed. I want okay. It's very well known that underpaid anything, right? I'm not talking about particularly just teachers. Anybody who is struggling financially loses sight of their core yeah, absolutely. aims because they have survival worries, yeah. right? When you're not doing well financially, you're going to lose focus and you're not going to perform at your, at your peak. And the you don't want the surgeon not being able to make his house payment. Right. And you don't want the person who has your child eight hours a day and responsible for their entire well-being, mental health, and and education to be eking by. Yeah. And I really, for most of my life, have been on the other side of this fence, okay? I, as a, I mean, not complete other side. It's not like I didn't care, but... I think that I was sort of beat down by the constant because they're always asking like, yeah. it's, it's like every election cycle, it's teachers pay. Right, right. Right. And I think that I let it distract me. And when I was looking into this, I was like, you know, I think this is something I really shifted over. I can't say I hardcore shifted over it because I didn't really have it cemented in my mind, but yeah, I mean, I changed my mind. I really, I think that they deserve a large income. Yeah, they. I mean, they have a, the kids for a third of their life from age five to age 18, 19. Mm -hmm. 
That's a lot. That's yeah. a lot of time. Yeah, the yeah. school, I mean, school is their life for that time, pretty much. And if that means that you have to strip down the administrative structure to get that money over to the teachers, then you better do it. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. If you, I mean, you added 95% to your administrative structure over the last 20 years. And the teachers gained none of it, or essentially I none mean, of it. I mean, I'm, I'm just floored by that. Like, I, there is no reason at all. It's pretty obscene. It's, I don't. Yeah. Something is. It's unacceptable. Something is terribly wrong. So strip down, strip down your administrative structure and get it into a purely functional place and then fund the teachers and unlock their potential and let them turn that classroom into something else. So. I mean, there we could go a million yeah, we can more. Keep going with this, yeah, yeah, we can go a million more different directions with this, but we've already kept you guys long enough. I think we've said our piece. Uh, did anybody have anything else they wanted to add? I wanted to make sure. It's it's mostly wrapped up. I mean, I I do want to say I was surprised. I was surprised to see just how modeled our education system was for the industrial age. It was surprise. It was like, I had no idea. Right. Yeah. That, it, that it I was mean, so when, dated. when you're in it at a young age, it feels like it's made for you. Right. Yeah, like, it, like, it feels, it's like, ah, uh, yeah. Math history. Yeah. It feels science. apt. Yeah. But you look at it from the outside in now and right. you're Hind- like, <laughs> hindsight like, 2020. You're like, like, that is definitely a, production line yeah yep. right it's exactly yeah. what it is and i i just think it's so outdated i can't i've said my piece <laughs> yeah. right right yeah. right right so i think that's it for us today guys hopefully y'all value uh the public education system as much as we do or what the public edu- education system could be and hopefully it changes if you will, you can find us on Facebook at Counter Encounter Podcast. You can also go to our show notes to find links for each of these sources uh, that we kind of pulled from to talk about today. And if you have a topic you want us to hash out on here, go to CandorEncounter.com slash submit. Type it in there. We appreciate it very much. Please give us anything that's on your mind. Also, you may not know this about us, but we're big audiophiles. And a lot of times before podcasts, we just sit here and play music for each Mm. other. And we're just like, did you hear this song? Did you hear this song? Uh, And so that turned us into looking and being creative for intro and outro music in every episode. It turned into a sort of a fun thing for us. Mm -hmm. And so we don't have one main theme song for Candor Encounter at this moment. And we find that fun, you know, and maybe that's a little different for a podcast because everybody's used to like having their identity in their theme song, but we feel like we want to use it as an expression of who we are. And so you're going to show up some days and there's going to be a totally different feel to candor encounter like today. And because of that, we just wanted to extend the invitation to you. Send us your favorite music. Like what's a great song. Um, and yeah, I mean, we'll we'll sit around just like we're sitting around a campfire and yeah, playing music. I almost guarantee you we're going to listen to it. Yeah, we yeah. will listen to it. Um, In fact, we would love to. <laughs> <laughs> so, 
If you feel like it, go ahead and send us your favorite track. Also, if you're on our website, go to the top and there's a little pod chaser link and you click on that and then you tell us why you love Canter Encounter. If you're on Apple Podcasts, do the same thing. Give us some stars and then tell us how we're doing. But that being said, we are done <laughs> and we are out of here. So always remember, we love you as a human being. So until next time, take it easy. got way off on a topic <laughs> that didn't have anything to do with it. <sighs> so you're going to do it into the <laughs> mic, okay. We got to get Easter egg somehow. <laughs> <laughs>